Welcome to episode 208 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today we're going to be interviewing Pete Kronos, who's the Senior Vice President and the Chief Information Security Officer at Turner Broadcasting and the author of a forthcoming book uh, uh, on cybersecurity called The Cyber Conundrum. Uh, but Let's jump right into our news roundup uh, because this is uh, the uh, the week that the ceiling fell in on Silicon Valley, as far as I can tell. Uh, it's it's a, a one minute hate extended at least to uh, to the week uh, because there's almost no good news for Silicon Valley uh, coming out of Washington uh, or anywhere else, as far as I can see. Um, the Biggest news of the last 48 hours is a uh, uh, remarkable set of uh, articles from The Guardian and The New York Times attacking Facebook and tying them to Cambridge Analytica and saying that Cambridge Analytica stole, breached, obtained um, 50 million uh, um, profiles, 30 million that are useful, uh, uh, and used them as part of its uh, uh, electioneering for uh, the Trump campaign. Campaign uh, and uh, uh, all the people who said, "Oh God, those Obama people—they're so good at using tech. They're so smart. They're so wonderful"—are now saying, "Oh, those Republicans who were so good at using tech—they must be criminals." Um, and uh, uh, Gus, you took a look at this. Uh, uh, what's the legal fallout here? Can you see? Uh, so at this point, it, we need to start by uh, just saying who knows what's really going on. Uh, these stories started to break uh, over the weekend on Saturday, and uh, this will continue to be in the news over the next uh, couple of days. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, there are two likely U.S.-based um, pieces of uh, potential legal fallout here. Um, the first is, as uh, best I can tell, this is primarily a private contractual matter. This isn't a security-related issue between uh, Facebook and uh, Cambridge Analytica and internally to Cambridge Analytica. Um, Facebook, it appears, gave the data or access to the data to an individual claiming to be using it for academic research purposes, and he turned around and used it for, in addition possibly to those purposes, um, uh, election analytics and other analytics. So there could be uh, some really interesting breach of contract uh, issues there. Oh, and, and as the a more, side note, as a side note, if you ever took one of those personality tests on Facebook to find out what personality type you are, you've been part of the scam, uh, which is really just an effort to get access to your data and the data of your friends, which is pretty much what I think that they, they did with this. They gave everybody, they gave maybe a quarter million people this test and asked them as part of doing the test if they could have access to all of their friends' data, and that's how they got to 30 million. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's worth uh, building on that. Uh, you should note that you should note that a lot of these quizzes and games and things that you link to or you can link to from Facebook, they all have terms of service. And very frequently, they're all geared towards harvesting data or doing some sort of analytics with data that you don't realize. Um, and this is the contractual landscape. If you're a privacy advocate, uh, the contractual healthscape that we live in. Um, and uh, there's a lot of important research uh, to be done on it. Um, the bigger potential area of uh, uh, legal fallout 
uh, I've seen some discussion that this could run afoul of the uh, uh, consent decree that Facebook has with uh, the FTC. And if that's right, the uh, potential damages here could be very substantial for Facebook. It's going to be very interesting to see if the FTC uh, enforces uh, that uh, uh, consent decree, how it does so, what that uh, litigation ultimately, I'm sure, will be is going to look like. Um, because the, the multipliers, when you put in a potential uh, multi-thousand, ten thousand, tens of thousands dollar per record per user damages times 50 million, start to uh, exceed GDPs of large nations. So um, those are the two areas of, I think, pure legal uh, fallout that we uh, are likely to see some discussion. Also uncertain uh, uh, how much of this data touches uh, on European citizens, European countries, and what the European response will be. Uh, well, so The Guardian was interested in this story because they hate Cam- Cambridge Analytica over Brexit. Uh, uh, so they were sure that uh, criminal acts had been committed as well. And so uh, we undoubtedly will see a U.K. Uh, uh, data protection investigation. Uh, like you, I kind of think this is all very contractual. Uh, and uh, um, the people whose data was used in these things were basically given up by their friends as part of the quiz. Uh, it's going to be um, uh, – uh, that doesn't mean that you can't find a violation because uh, the privacy laws are uniquely written so that everything's a violation, especially in Europe. So uh, um, uh, my guess is uh, um, this is going to be a long, um, uh, ugly fight because uh, – you know, elites have it in for Cambridge Analytica and Steve Bannon uh, for Brexit and Trump and everybody else. Uh, um, uh, and so things that wouldn't have been uh, violations um, if they'd been done by somebody else will become violations here. Okay. Um, I'm going to move us on because, God, we've got a lot of uh, – there's a lot of roof that fell in. Uh, um Let's start with something uh, that where the roof might or might not be falling in, net neutrality. Uh, oh, uh, we have not covered this in a while, uh, partly because there's been a lot of maneuvering and not much action. But now we at least know what court we're going to be in, right, Stephanie? Uh, let's not put the cart before the horse, Stuart. Um, there was a motion filed on Friday to transfer the case to the D.C. Circuit uh, that was unopposed by uh, the Ninth Circuit filers and also unopposed by the FCC. Wow. So we could be back in D.C. We could be back in D.C. It's up to the discretion of the Ninth Circuit whether or not to grant it. Uh, and the why precedent somebody, for this is a bit file scant. The, why would somebody file in the Ninth Circuit and then agree to move it to the D.C. Uh, the filers in the Ninth Circuit were on various aspects of um, Californian entities, uh, the California PUC, uh, uh, another California um, uh, entity. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm blanking on the exact entities. There were three, but they were all California-based and all kind of a little bit qua- government or quasi-government uh, associations with them. So I, I think that's their standard operating uh, protocol to uh, file in the Ninth okay. Circuit um, and, and to have the Ninth Circuit, you know, kind of treat their um, – positions favorably, perhaps. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons that the folks, the large number of folks who filed in the D.C. circuit uh, are seeking a review by that circuit. So traditionally, uh, the D.C. circuit has something close to 
near contempt for the FCC and a, 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 an enthusiastic willingness to um, reconsider what they have done. Uh, so I would say that the D.C. Circuit is well known uh, for its large body of administrative law precedent. Um, and uh, they've had this case for nigh on 10 years, really, in its uh, prior yes, uh, manifestations. They overturned the initial net neutrality, they overturned the DC, uh, excuse me, the FCC twice uh, until they upheld the rules, the open internet rules, the 2015 order. So we don't, we don't, we don't even know what court we're in. Uh, we don't even know what court we're in. Oh, this and, will take forever, won't But it? it's, uh, not only the case, whether or not we're in the Ninth Circuit or in the D.C. Circuit for the um, oddly named Restoring Internet Freedom Order, we, uh, even if that, so imagine a scenario where that gets overturned. Uh, say, say, it, uh, say a court rules that it's arbitrary and capricious. We have this outstanding appeal of the 2015 Open Internet Order that's at the Supreme Court. And... Uh, so the petition for cert has been filed, and there have been extensions on briefings granted by the court there on whether or not, you know, the petition for cert should be granted. And I can see a scenario where that, where extensions are granted until the current Restoring Internet Freedom Order is Resolved because if the restoring internet freedom order is overturned, then the 2015 rules spring back into effect. And though you, so you have an extant case at that point by the petitioners, um, the large ISPs and uh, MNOs of the world. So, so candidly, that sounds like the sort of fever dream of communications lawyers. Uh, I don't think the Supreme Court cares enough to kind of stretch its procedures. Well, they've stretched it for um, 10 months now. Okay. Um, And so the other alternative is uh, somebody could ask that it be declared moot because arguably there's no Article 3 injury that – the petitioners have anymore because the restoring internet freedom order is in effect and it withdrew those rules. But right. So there's this question of if the current order is overturned, what happens? The, the other 2015 rules spring back into effect. Okay. Okay. So, um, now you know why we didn't talk about this for (laughs) three months. (laughs) Yes. Should have waited another three years. I don't anticipate (laughs) briefing, um, likely to the fall and or are going to the fall. So, so meanwhile, some states have started to say, well, we'll just step in and impose net neutrality requirements on our own. Uh, um, uh, can you give us some sense of uh, sure. what the theory of that is? I mean, I, I haven't looked at this extensively yet, uh, but uh, some states are tying it to eligibility for state contracts for uh, Internet connectivity, for example. So unless a, an Internet provider implements net neutrality-like rules across its footprint, they're not eligible to provide services to the government. Um, other states, I understand, are looking at uh, pushing that farther. I think the jurisdictional question of whether or not there's preemption here, uh, it becomes much closer uh, call in those cases. But I don't think we're at the stage where we know the particulars um, yeah, and, of what and might the be FCC actually get passed. To, the FCC 
I'm sure could decide to challenge all of those. It could decide to challenge them on the grounds that it interferes with the existing reg, uh, or they could adopt uh, something it's a, specific. It's going to be a preemption yes. argument. I'm exactly. pretty sure. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that was Stephanie Roy, uh, who uh, we have. I didn't do the intros. I apologize. Uh, uh, partner in our telecom practice. Uh, somebody who's done net neutrality work uh, as well as domestic and foreign satellite telecommunications work before the FCC. Um, Stephanie, welcome. We. We will have you back as soon as something is clear. So you, something actually happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Happy <laughs> Thanks. to be back. <laughs> okay. Um, and I should introduce the others uh, uh, who are here for the news roundup. Alan Cohn is back with us. Uh, 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 Alan is formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at DHS, now Counsel at Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Thanks, Stuart. And uh, Gus Hurwitz, uh, Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Director of Space, Cyber, and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska. Uh, Gus, uh, apologies for not having introduced you already. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, let's turn to Alan, uh, because it's my impression that the roof was falling in on cryptocurrencies, uh, and you have said to me privately, well, maybe only on the bad ones. So uh, uh, what's happening vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis government and cryptocurrencies? Well, I think that's right. I think what you're seeing is that some of the U.S. regulators that didn't get into the game early enough are now having to catch up. Um, so, uh, ironically, as you know, you know, um, FinCEN, uh, the yes. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which administers the Anti-Money Laundering Bank Secrecy Act uh, regime, uh, was one of the first regulators in the world to get into this space, saying virtual currency is just like other currency. And right. You need to meet our rules. The IRS got in a little bit later, saying um, cryptocurrency is property. Ironically, while that caused some dislocations and upset in the cryptocurrency world, when those things were issued, they ended up creating certainty around mm -hmm. those issues, or at least some certainty around those issues that have allowed people to innovate uh, against them. And we've now seen in countries like South Korea and Japan, those regulators having to rush in now with anti-money laundering and New York customer rules because they didn't have them before. The and, challenge and they're following the uh, path that was laid out by the U.S. regulators? Yeah, okay. basically policing the on-ramps and off-ramps, the cryptocurrency exchanges, the people selling cryptocurrencies. Um, but what about the SEC and the FTC? Both of them have taken action that is, was viewed as pretty hostile to cryptocurrency in the last uh, week or so. Well, so that's the interesting thing, is that the SEC in particular took a kind of a we're going to sit on the sidelines and wait and watch yep. approach. And now, after four or five billion dollars worth of capital have come flooded into the space, now they have to do something. So what we've seen over the last uh, few weeks are notices about the SEC sending out reams of subpoenas and information requests on initial coin offerings or token generation events or whatever you want to call them uh, to understand how people did them. Uh, Jay Clayton, uh, commissioner, uh, chairman of the SEC, making statements to Congress and in uh, statements uh, that the SEC has released saying, well, there's cryptocurrencies and I think we're okay with those. And then there are all these token issuances and there, there are probably some that are not, there, there may be some that are not securities, but the, the ones that I've seen all look like securities to me, but not doing what some other countries are beginning to do, which is to say, look, 
there's cryptocurrencies, there's tokens that are that are debt or securities, and then there's another category. Call them what you want. Uh, the industry calls them utility tokens that um, that either aren't regulated or need or are subject to different kinds of regulations or registrations. The SEC is really wrestling with that. Number one. Mm-hmm. And now they're wrestling with their ostensible partners, the CFTC, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, over who's going to have jurisdiction. Oh, well, yeah. Over Welcome to Washington. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so what I think a lot of what a lot a lot of what's going on is, number one, the Securities and Exchange Commission is having to get involved in a lot of things like, you know, things like fraud. Right. <laughs> Ponzi schemes, misrepresentations. You don't need crypto to do that. But of course, just like any other asset class, it's there. Um, and so they've got. Plus, they're involved. so easy to steal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you'd be surprised. But, but um, they've done that. Uh, now they're trying to figure out, well, who gets to regulate things like spot markets? Um, is there such a thing as a utility token? Um, and how in the world are, you know, how in the world are we going to get our arms around this? The CFTC has taken a little bit more forward-leaning approach. And in fact, in that same congressional hearing and, and in statements um, uh, that have been made elsewhere, you've seen CFTC commissioners say, well, look, we need a self-regulatory organization. This industry is in a good position to regulate itself, um, you know, but we need them to step up and do that. And so what I think you're seeing this week um, is a lot of kind of predictable uh, uh, statements from uh, uh, from the SEC, um, some interesting statements from the CFTC leaning forward. What I think is most interesting and where there are some real issues um, was that uh, buried under a lot of other things, the SEC warned investment funds. Uh, there are a lot of investment funds that have purchased ICO tokens mm-hmm. uh, and there's a big open question as to what's the status. What does that mean when those investment funds then package those up and sell them to L- sell, sell interest to LPs? Does that make them subject to the Investment Advisors Act, or is this all private placement of securities? And as long as you disclose, uh, then there isn't a responsibility. And then, of course, we've had some other uh, regulators jump into the mix. Um, uh, you saw the Federal Trade Commission get involved, yeah. bringing in action against um, what was essentially a set of Ponzi schemes, um, but which were using cryptocurrency. And the FTC coming in and saying, "Well, if it's a crypto, if it's a if, if it's Ponzi scheme, if it's fraud, we've got skin in this game too." So I think that's going to be a really interesting aspect of the next few months in crypto is this kind of wrestling match over which regulator, which regulator is going to get to do what. Um, and are they going to be able to, to find an accommodation with each other, or is it going to continue with this kind of um, what Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District of New York characterized in a recent opinion affirming that the CFTC has jurisdiction, that this is a, a multi-regulator approach? And, um, that, yes, that sort of like would, a multi-stakeholder. Every regulatory agency is a stakeholder. Yeah, or a, um, or a cage match. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and I, you know, often in Washington you look up and you say, uh, does that ceiling look like it's about to cave in on us? And everybody says, yes, it, uh, it does. And so you quick rush out to get a self-regulatory approach. Yeah, and what's also interesting is um, the use of the bully pulpit. Um, some of the statements, for example, um, the the Securities and Exchange Commission saying that, um, you know, something that has been interpreted as being that all cryptocurrency exchanges have to register as broker dealers with the with the SEC, 
Well, but if cryptocurrencies, leaving alone ICO tokens, but if cryptocurrencies are not securities, then where's this jurisdiction coming from? Right. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a certain amount also of trying to use the impressions and the newness of the space right. to try to get people you, to do things that maybe the jurisdiction doesn't extend. Well, to. if you find somebody who did something wrong, you've got and you, and you rush in. Nobody's going to question the the idea that you should rush in. And in the process of cleaning up that mess, you might extend your jurisdiction just a little. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, Scipius, uh, speaking of extending your jurisdiction, Scipius has uh, um, come up with a uh, uh, new um, uh, view of national security, uh, uh, and uh, um, they struck down or recommended the president, and the president agreed to uh, uh, strike down uh, Broadcom's effort to uh, – acquire Qualcomm, uh, and they did it. They're supposed to be a national security agency. They did it on national security grounds, but on new and kind of remarkable national security grounds, essentially saying, you know, we think Broadcom is not going to invest enough uh, in 5G for the United States to continue to be a player in um, 5G uh, telecom uh, standards, uh, and therefore we don't want them to take over uh, uh Qualcomm, uh, um, no one's ever come up with a, uh, an analysis like that before in the course of take, striking down a, uh, a deal. Uh, my guess is they were able to write that kind of a fine-tuned uh, um, national security analysis with a lot of sophistication about the uh, um, relative uh, investment strategies of the two companies because Qualcomm was fighting this thing tooth and nail and undoubtedly cooperated uh, uh, in uh, providing a lot of uh, uh, sophisticated analysis. Uh, But it is uh, a very big deal, turned down, Clearly a reflection of the difference that uh, President Trump has made in, in office, whether you like it or not. Uh, this, is a, this is a big deal. Uh, it's part of, I think, a, a deep skepticism about where technology is taking us uh, that we also see in Senator Cornyn's uh, uh, bill to dramatically expand uh, what uh, um, CFIUS's jurisdiction is over uh, Silicon Valley uh, exit strategies, and they uh, uh, that bill was modified in kind of modest ways to accommodate some of the criticisms, and it continues to roll on, and I I was struck, this was also a surprise, by this remarkably bitter Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed by uh, Representative Pittenger in which he pointed a, a harsh finger at GE and IBM and just read them out basically saying you don't care enough about uh, the United States and its economy, its national security, um, and you're doing this for your own selfish – you're fighting this bill for your own selfish reasons. Uh, again, not something you – you're used to seeing most people don't take on big companies like that uh, in Congress. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, uh, keeping with the theme today, uh, uh, one-minute hate on tech companies in the United States. Uh, everybody's getting in it. Uh, um, okay. Um, 
Last topic, uh, or not just about last topic, I think, because uh, we're running low on time. Uh, I, the uh, Russians have been caught in our um, uh, industrial control system networks uh, with their basically their finger on the uh, uh, the button to turn off power, uh, or, or at least close to that. There's a uh, surprisingly well-received DHS uh, report on this compared to the last one they did right at the uh, uh, during the administration, which was widely panned. Uh, this one was viewed as a uh, helpful and thoughtful uh, report, but nonetheless, it says the Russians are getting in and uh, we're very worried. Uh, uh, at the same time, um, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has seen people come in and actually screw with their industrial control systems in ways that were almost certainly designed to cause explosions uh, uh, and kill people, uh, uh, and only the errors of the uh, uh, the attackers, their their programming errors, prevented that from happening. There was no successful defense. Uh, um, so, I don't know. This uh, uh, this is just part of um, our entire IT infrastructure circling the drain in terms of cybersecurity uh, and especially uh, industrial control systems which are crucial to human life these days. Yeah, I think I might have a somewhat contrarian take on this uh, issue. I remain uh, more concerned about squirrels than about the Russians in our electric grid. <laughs> uh, the reason being with the squirrels, I think there's a, a more realistic likelihood that they are actually going to execute their ability to uh, cause real damage. Plus, they're highly motivated. They're highly motivated. These are suicide attacks in every case. Yes, they are. Uh, um, And I think what we have, and this is hopefully not too Pollyanna-ish a spin on this, a bit of a a Dr. Strangelove situation with uh, uh, our domestic infrastructure. Um, I think I fully expect that we are in their infrastructure, the Chinese are in their infrastructure, and our infrastructure, and it's critical that we all know that so that no one is willing to actually execute on those capabilities and use them to take down the infrastructure. The areas where I'm more worried about um, critical uh, uh, infrastructure-style attacks, uh, as we see non-peer countries, so with the uh, stories coming out of uh, Saudi Arabia, um, Russia is perfectly willing to, uh, and other state actors are perfectly willing to, for whatever strategic purposes or uh, research and development uh, capabilities development purposes, uh, actually execute attacks um, in uh, countries uh, that don't have as much capability to retaliate, perhaps. The... Uh, the thing that scares me perhaps the most, though, uh, isn't the fact that uh, Russia might be or is in our systems. Uh, it's that they're in our systems via technological means that, as we saw in the story uh, in Saudi Arabia where it went the other way, um, it's very easy to do things wrong. So I'm more worried that uh, the Russians will be in our systems and they'll be uh, messing around. They'll be trying to install a backdoor or something, and that will go wrong. Um, And in having a bug in their attack software, uh, that's what's going to cause uh, uh, the problems for us, the catastrophic incident. Or for that matter, our own IT uh, efforts to uh, protect the systems or to uh, uh, remove detected intrusions uh, are going to go awry. And we see this constantly in uh, uh, the uh, software world. Uh, Software is really hard to do right 
either on the offensive or defensive side. And I think innocent mistakes that go terribly wrong are the greater threat vector than actual threat actors trying to execute on their capabilities. Well, that's uh, that, that's encouraging. So we might die by accident instead of on purpose. Uh, uh, okay, I I I I grant you that. Uh, uh, all right, there is a whole bunch of stories that we did not get to cover that uh, in other weeks we would have. Uh, um, the uh, uh, the WHOES database, which lots of security researchers use to find attackers, uh, is going to become unavailable because of, well, the stupid uh, um, European data protection uh, uh, expansion of penalties. Uh, and no one wants to take a risk that uh, they might be exposing personal data improperly. And so we will have less security and more alleged privacy. Uh, uh, no surprise there. Uh, although Ted Cruz, who said we shouldn't give up uh, ICANN, uh, uh, which is the uh, keeper of uh, who is, uh, uh, is turning out to be uh, maybe writer than uh, people gave him credit for, because if they'd kept authority over ICANN, they might have been able to just order them to do this. Uh, AMD's chipsets have an in- apparently, and this is hard to verify, but uh, have a backdoor built in by a third party. Uh, this is the allegation. It's hard to, to test because they haven't disclosed all of the facts about uh, the uh, attack, uh, and they may have done that because they wanted to sell AMD's shares short. So uh, everybody is a little uncertain about uh, the allegation by the uh, uh, securities researchers, uh, but it's uh, pretty frightening if it happened, and no one knows whether it uh, happened and whether it was deliberate if it uh, did. Uh, uh, let's see. What else? Oh, Hal Martin's really dumb argument, uh, which he got a little bit of attention from the uh, uh, judge on, saying, oh, I took terabytes of data and you're charging me with knowingly uh, 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 compromising uh, uh, 20 documents. I didn't even know those documents were there. You have to prove I knew those documents were there and classified in that vast trove of classified documents that I compromised. Uh, uh, The court has quite properly rejected that argument. Uh, uh, Let's see. Treasury sanctioned... the, the usual suspects uh, for election meddling are the same people, basically, and uh, with a few more names attached uh, that uh, uh, Bob Mueller uh, indicted. Uh, um, uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I continue to wonder what the value of uh, um, sanctioning the FSB and the GRU is, but uh, that's what we did. Uh, uh, and uh, in... Three minutes, if I can do it, uh, for those of you who are wondering why it is that conservatives hate uh, Silicon Valley, uh, here are some of the stories just from the last week. Uh, Twitter suspended a comedian, uh, and so did YouTube, because he apparently sent people to a South by Southwest uh, um, uh, LGBTQ uh, meeting. Uh, 
uh, claiming to identify as a computer, which is more than plausible at South by, uh, and uh, uh, making fun of uh, all the people who were trying to explain why he couldn't identify as a uh, computer. Uh, uh, that apparently is hate speech for both Twitter and YouTube, so he uh, was suspended and decommercialized. Uh, meanwhile, uh, as many people on the right pointed out, Louis Farrakhan continues to have not only a Twitter account that is not blocked, but has the uh, famous blue check that uh, has been denied to practically the entire right wing of the uh, Twitter sphere. Uh, and let's see, uh, um, reports that all of the headlines on, or many of the headlines on Drudge are being blocked by Twitter so that uh, um, when they uh, tweet their uh, their headlines, they just get uh, 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 content blocked by Twitter. Uh, and then finally, the Western Journal has done a study of the new Facebook algorithm, uh, uh, which is meant to uh, uh, revive Facebook's commitment to quality news, uh, and it turns out that uh, it has knocked down uh, uh, left-wing uh, um, uh, sites by about 2% in their traffic and right-wing sites by about 14%. Uh, a couple have already gone out of business, uh, so everyone suspects on the right suspects uh, massive hidden um, uh, censorship and discrimination against uh, uh, right-wing speech uh, uh, by all of Silicon Valley. That will uh, pay dividends, I'm sure, uh, for as long as there are Republicans in Congress. Uh, Stuart, Stuart are, are you alleging a vast left-wing conspiracy? <laughs> I, 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 I think that that is uh, for sure the... Uh, the view of most of the commentators on the right now. They think that uh, Twitter hates them, Facebook dislikes them, um, uh, YouTube uh, is out to um, uh, bankrupt them. Gosh, I never see, thought I'd see so much uh, empathy from them for Hillary Clinton. Yes. <laughs> well, that's, you know, take it where you can find it. Okay. Uh, that's it. Uh, uh, let's go on to our interview with Pete Cronus. So, Pete, um, uh, welcome to the show. I, I, I'm going to start out with a question that is not about your book, which uh, uh, is uh, the uh, cyber conundrum and uh, uh, is just out, right, uh, uh, like a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, that's right. Just came out. All right. Well, so let me let me start because I I find this um, particularly interesting. Uh, how did you end up as the Turner uh, Chief Information Security Officer? Uh, you didn't start out with that as a goal, did you? No, look, I, I started in the technology like a lot of folks did and just kind of wove my way into information security and and uh, found my way uh, here to Turner, right? I've been here for about two and a half years. Um, and so, yeah, I started off as a project manager, became a software developer, uh, and uh, spent my time uh, – uh, building systems that detected and prevented credit card fraud. And then, you know, through a series of uh, fortunate or unfortunate events, depending upon how you uh, uh, calculate them, uh, found my way uh, managing an information security team and, and kind of working my way up from there. And so, you know, I, I like having that software development background because it gave me insight uh, as to how things are done in, in companies. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's given me a lot of, uh, 
not only did I say good insight, but also, um, you know, great experience in, in how to collaborate with others to get things done, which is really the name of the game in information security. I guess that's right. Uh, it, it, there's less and less code and less and less tech and more and more interpersonal politics, I guess, uh, um, as you, as you rise through the ranks. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, the Cyber Conundrum, uh, is obviously a heartfelt book. If you could write it while also being a CISO, uh, um, can you give our audience the, thesis of the book in one minute and then we'll come back and explore parts of it yeah sure um happy to do so uh, look the book takes a look at the state of cybersecurity today and and really challenges the notion um well challenges the paradigm that we're in right now we're stuck in this world of kind of incremental improvement and and really uh my thesis is that we really need to have uh, dramatic action to des- address today's and tomorrow's cybersecurity challenges, right? So the book really calls for a comprehensive national strategy to address a lot of the fundamental behaviors in the tech ecosystem that are contributing to poor cybersecurity. So uh, that's where the concept of the moonshot comes in, right? The book explores three moonshots from history, uh, tries to draw some lessons from those, and then tries to explore some ways we can take those lessons and apply them to cybersecurity. Really, uh, I think, you know, the, the key concept for folks reading the book is um, this isn't the final recipe for the cybersecurity moonshot. Uh, what I'm trying to help do is kind of ignite uh, and promote the debate uh, around the conversation uh, that we need more comprehensive solutions to address cybersecurity. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think um, Moonshot doesn't really express it. Uh, when when Kennedy said we should land a man on the moon within the decade, uh, there wasn't somebody already on the moon with uh, uh, anti-aircraft weapons uh, uh, who was also listening. Uh, uh, and that's where we find ourselves in, in uh, cybersecurity. We've got active, smart, aggressive, adaptable um, opponents. Uh, and... Almost everything that looks like a solution works until our active and aggressive and able uh, adversaries uh, uh, figure out how to defeat it, and then we're back where we started. Look, I would agree. Here's what I would do. I would challenge the notion to say that there wasn't anybody on the moon, but certainly um, really uh, getting to the moon was really about improving and enhancing our missile capabilities, right? This was really, uh, while it was a national challenge and had uh, the underpinnings of a huge scientific uh, uh, evolution and revolution, it was all really uh, started with the fact that we felt we were behind uh, the Soviets uh, in our uh, ICBM technology and what was a way for us to boost that. So there, there's certainly the same competitive aspect in, in, in getting a person to the moon that we see in cybersecurity today. The stakes are high, uh, just like you said. And, you know, I think if it were easy, it would have been done already, right? I think this is really a, a very challenging, very complex uh, scenario that we we really have to pull apart, explore, and address. So you do that. You, 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 you've got a whole bunch of very specific uh, uh, ideas, uh, and whether they add up to a moonshot, I, I think we probably both agree that uh, you could add up everything you do, and it would not 
be a moonshot. There's still more that needs to be done. But I do want to explore some of the ideas that, that you talk about here. So you talk about underwriters laboratory or a cyber ITL, uh, uh, an effort to say uh, some equipment is good equipment, some equipment is bad equipment, uh, and we should just stop certifying and buying the bad equipment. Is that fair? I think that's a, at a high level, I think that rep, that's representative, right? And so when we take a look at really the cyber conundrum is how do we make and address fundamental problems, right? Fundamental behaviors in the tech ecosystem. And one of those behaviors is speed to market at the expense of security. And, and that's true for software. It's true for products, uh, IoT devices in particular, right? Yep. Uh, uh, because those are, you know, there, there are 10 times more of those IoT devices out there than there are uh, Internet-enabled devices or, you know, laptops and desktops, right? And that's growing at an expansive rate. It will be much higher than 10 times in the future. Um, and so how do we as consumers, how do we as corporate buyers uh, get some level of um, comfort that the security baked in that product is going to be uh, at least meet some sort of minimum standard. And and what I tried to do is take a look at what's worked in the past in other areas as inspiration. And I looked at Underwriters Labs, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with them. I, I know sure. uh, most people yeah, they they're, they're the guys who say, you know, that your, uh, uh, your electric cord is not going to melt down when you plug the toaster in. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was very important. They've been around since the 1890s. Uh, they're in, uh, they've certified 22 billion products in the market today. You know, they have 1500 standards and it's a public private partnership, right? And so a lot of folks are skeptical. I'm skeptical that the federal government can come up for, with standards around information security. And so this public private partnership that underwriters labs, uh, uh, provides us as a model is, is really interesting to explore. And take that a step further in the cyber realm. Uh, there's a group that's come together, um, some very uh, uh, prominent uh, information security uh, uh, experts are behind CyberITIL. It started off in, in DARPA, and, and basically what CyberITIL says is, can we build an ecosystem that allows us to build standards and test the products we bring to the marketplace? And, and while it's in its uh, very early stages, uh, they're trying to model underwriters' labs. They're trying to model the work that Consumer Reports does into this uh, repeatable framework that can be used across the entire ecosystem. And I, I think it's promising and might help us uh, do a better job of bringing more secure markets, uh, or more secure products to the market. Now, consumers uh, and, uh, uh, and buyers and uh, government organizations are going to need to come together and figure out what the right framework is uh, for bringing products to market. Um, yeah, I worry. I mean, the biggest problem in that area is um, I, consumers themselves. We we all know that we don't want our uh, power cord to melt down when we're plugging in the toaster. Uh, but if it was a cool new Apple toaster um, that was, uh, you know, connected to the Internet and uh, 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 gave us an interface that uh, involved uh, um, talking to Steve Jobs, we might say, yeah, but it's just too cool. Uh, and we wouldn't care whether the cyber ITL had uh, approved the product or not. Uh, uh, and I do worry that that's the problem, that the people who are saying uh, – Speed to market is more important than security are vindicated by the market every day of the week. 
I think if you look back in the late 1800s where most Americans didn't spend much time in school, you know, electricity was seen as almost magic, right, uh, in some some, some quarters. And, and maybe that's where we are with technology today where we don't, you know, the good news is the ecosystem evolves so that if you're going to market a product and you are a retailer, you, you look to make sure that your products are certified as safe in one way, shape, or form. You kind of take the consumer out of it. Uh, and, and that creates a healthier ecosystem. Can somebody fake a UL uh, symbol? Absolutely. Um, but the, the reality is the broader ecosystem is safer as a result of the work that they do, uh, some of the work that Cyber ITIL is trying to do as well. And um, to your point, it, it's not certainly perfect, but it gets us farther uh, down the line in terms of having a, a standard that's verifiable. Well, I, you know, I, I, I have read enough history to know that, uh, in fact, they didn't think it was just magic. They thought it was really scary black magic uh, and that uh, electricity could kill you, as indeed it could. Uh, um, and that uh, uh, Thomas Edison, who was pushing alter- alternating current over direct current, uh, uh, used that in order to drive the standard toward uh, his product, even though there were some questions about whether it was the best way to deliver electricity. Uh, and one of the things he did in order to scare people about direct current was propose that the electric chair run on direct current so that we would be executing people using this evil form of technology not offered by Thomas Edison. Um, so maybe if, if we want to scare people about uh, uh, the risks of cybersecurity, we should find a way to carry out death sentences using, you know, Russian hackers uh, and uh, an endless exposure to YouTube. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. Am I allowed to say no comment? <laughs> yes, I, I you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of people I, say that. That's, I get that re- reaction a lot. Uh, okay, okay, <laughs> let me ask good. about uh, let me ask cool. about another topic that you, you talked sure, about, sure. machine learning uh, code review. Um, sure. And 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 I, I I see that as sort of um, early stage AI looking over code to try to find problems. It's sort of a step up from fuzzing, I, and it does strike me as something that is likely to work, but could just as easily work for the bad guys as the good guys. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you. It's there, although it hasn't materialized. Um, it, it's certainly out there today. Machine learning is being used by the most uh, advanced hackers today. Um, but here, here's what I would say. Look, we've got to get closer to bug-free code. We haven't figured out as human beings how to do that on our own with our processes and technologies. It's a multidimensional problem, right? Fewer bugs in software mean fewer vulnerabilities for hackers to exploit. Um, and, and so I think that's a good thing. Those tools that take uh, AI, machine learning techniques, they don't exist today. Uh, they're part, I think, evolution. I think they're part revolution, right? Um, and so when you take a look at where software is going in the future, right, we went in the last 10 years from operating systems averaging about a billion lines of code to 10 billion lines of code. Um, it's, it's difficult for humans, uh, smart humans, by the way, much smarter than I, uh, to figure out how to build processes. So we're going to need to have assistive technologies uh, that help us not only get the speed to market we need, but also uh, in parallel help build security into the products, right? I I, I shudder. Are we looking at uh, 100 billion lines of code for in 10 years mm-hmm. for operating systems? 
um, you know, that's uh, beyond the realm of uh, complexity that I can contemplate. So, I, it, it, you know, it's not – while we've got that, we've also got the – a, a very common problem, which is people use lousy passwords. Uh, oh yeah, and 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 you're you're eloquent about how bad the password system is, and how uh, uh, relying on uh, phone messages to uh, convey over signal system seven, uh, seven is not likely to work because of weaknesses in the security of SS seven. Um, let me ask. Uh, what do you see as a way out of that? Uh, you can, it's easy to say two-factor authentication. It's not so easy to get people to adopt it. I, I think that's true. Uh, let me give you an example. And 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 um, look, we've got two billion mobile phones in the hands of, of people around the world, and it takes. It's so intuitive. No one has to go to a class on how to use it. And when I say no one, you know, virtually no one. Right. Um. You know, why isn't the security built into the apps in the phone just as intuitive. I'll tell you, like when we preach multi-factor authentication, you know, around here, uh, we built a guide to tell people how to do it uh, for just the most common apps, not everything, but everything that makes up the most important parts of your digital identity, like uh, 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 your social media accounts, your banking accounts, uh, you know, how do you protect your credit? That was 23 pages. Right. And, and it's not verbose in, in, in the instructions. It has a lot of links to, uh, you know, the apps themselves to figure out how to do it. And so you start to think it's super complex for people. And so we have to change the paradigm a little bit. Uh, and, and we have to build and bake security into the way we design and build apps that doesn't rely on, on, on humans, uh, to do it right. And when I say the humans, I mean users. And so, if we can build uh, more centralized authentication platforms uh, uh, that uh, use assistive or similar technologies, right? Uh, there's a lot of folks that are out there using uh, 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 the way uh, you hold your phone um, and the way the phone you carry the phone in your pocket as a unique identifier for you, right? Certainly not perfect, but. Uh, if I have a way of validating who I am without having to remember a unique password for the 40 account, online accounts I have, that's a win, right? If I yeah. can make security simpler for the average user, because that's what we're building for. We're building for the average user. Um, and don't, you know, this is billions of people, right? And so how, how can we uh, uh, make uh, technology and security as intuitive as the devices that these things are running on, I think is the goal. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on an advisory board for a company that's trying to solve this problem, and, and they uh, tell me that uh, um, you, you can hardly get more than one person in 20 to go through the, uh, the process of setting up two-factor authentication. So they're coming up with a, a solution that doesn't require a lot from the user and can be set up by the company that wants to authenticate users uh, um, and then runs in the background and, as, as you say, runs off of uh, uh, knowing that it's your phone and it's with you as long as it hasn't changed recently. That's a second factor that you can rely on. I think it's nice, right? And and, and one thing, you know, we have to assume as we're building these technologies that people are going to try to hack and crack them. And so um, that's that's one of the challenges that we have in the world as well is people come out with these great technical solutions but don't spend a lot of time thinking about how they can be subverted. So hopefully this company you're working with is thinking through that as well and comes out with something, 
if they're able to do that, that's it's a home run. Right? Well, no, that's right. And I and I I I've already said to them. I say you'll know that you're uh, uh, you're having an impact uh, when the Russians and the Chinese hack you uh, in order to figure out how to defeat your system. Um, all right, uh, let me ask about something that I uh, you you talked a lot about Washington. You talked about. Uh, uh, a cyber czar with greater authority, uh, uh, incentives, taxes, liability, uh, uh, protection, um, that might induce people to adopt more, uh, uh, security, setting standards, uh, um, and I thought, you know, we've actually made some progress there. I, uh, and I don't know that more progress is on the horizon. The DHS, on the civilian side, basically is the, the, the guts of a cyber czar. And yes, there's somebody in the White House who has that job too. Uh, and DHS supports them as does NSA. Uh, but I, 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 I'm skeptical that more, um, designation of, um, uh, authority inside the government is going to change much. Although maybe if DHS took a more aggressive Stance, we would be paying more attention to their uh, ideas of cybersecurity. Yeah, here, here's what I would say is that look, I think we need a comprehensive national strategy to address it beyond yeah. what we're doing today in a transformative way. I think the challenge is the public and private sector aren't aligned uh, along the same uh, objectives. When you look at, say, how other uh, complex problems are solved, there's an element of centralization that's involved. There's typically some enlightened leadership. These are people that get things moving, uh, that work with a, a vanguard to develop a strategy uh, that use that centralized authority to develop a groundswell to make things happen. And in my mind, uh, I think uh, uh, DHS, the cybersecurity czar, some of the work that's being done at Cyber Command and NSA, uh, there's a lot of smart people doing a lot of great things. Um, but it doesn't boil up into a national strategy that builds the, that pushes the private and public sectors together to address this problem in a comprehensive way. So one thing you so, did, one thing you didn't talk about in your book that I I want to uh, push on a little just because it's my hobby sure. first, so I I get to to push on it. Uh, um, the um, there's a standards process at IETF right now uh, for yeah. for TLS uh, coming up oh, with yeah. TLS 1.3 and um, the fight there's a big fight or at least a, a, a subterranean fight uh, between the privacy absolutists who say we will never put a backdoor into uh, the SS what amounts to the SSL standard and a bunch of enterprise uh, 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 owners who say we have to look inside these pipe these encrypted pipes because it's all our data running on that and, and if you're if you're bringing malware in we have to be able to see what's coming in so we have to break the crypto and inspect the inward traffic and then you could be exfiltrating our data and so we need to break the crypto and inspect the uh, uh, outgoing data um, and they've said so TLS should open up the possibility of doing that. Uh, uh, and the response of the IETF has, is uh, no privacy, no anonymity, uh, um, uh, no, 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 back, back door, back door, back door. <coughs> now, I don't know if you've followed that, but uh, I have, you know, it, I'm going to guess that 
Turner doesn't let, let stuff leave or enter its network without being inspected. And my question is, uh, uh, is the IETF going to make your life much more complicated if they adopt this uh, the standard? Look, here's what I'll say. I'll, I'll say there's this battle going on that goes beyond the IETF, right? Where, where you talk about technologies uh, that um, folks in the privacy world say are abusive by design. They're not designed to be abusive, but their design uh, leaves the opportunity for abuse. Uh, and, and I think TLS is a great example for, of that. Uh, d- big data sharing, uh, what we saw with uh, uh, some of the interesting things uh, coming out on Friday about Cambridge, uh, yep. uh, was it Cambridge Analytica? You, you have these uh, these systems that, again, can be abused because of the way they're designed. Abusive by design is not a term I had. I actually read it in, in by a, a privacy advocate last week, and it, it, it really kind of opened my mind. They're looking for uh, ways to ensure privacy, right, at absolutely all costs, including uh, potentially the impact to security. I, I live in a world where I, I – uh, I can't live with absolutes, right? I want everything to be absolutely secure, but um, that's not the way the world and technology works. So I have to manage dimensions of risk. So in this particular case, I think the quest for purity uh, has some has some casualties, and, and some of the casualties have to do with uh, uh, folks who who uh, need to uh, strip apart those packets and look inside to see what's going on. That's one example. Now. Could that be abused? Absolutely. This all came about, LOM3 came about as a result of some of the disclosures behind uh, uh, some of the uh, 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 folks in the, um, in the intelligence world who, who were sniffing packets because they were able to uh, bust apart the, the encryption. And so there's a reason for it. I understand the reason for it. I understand the passion behind uh, wanting to make it uh, secure. But, you know, you think about what iPhones as well, right? Like if you're a law enforcement agent and you're trying to solve a crime um, uh, and maybe that crime is ongoing uh, and you need to bust in that phone, boy, you know, uh, there's a cost to, uh, to being able to not break open that phone. And that's uh, uh, somebody's somebody may be in uh, mortal danger. Yeah, I, 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 I think I see it more or less the way you do. That uh, the absolutists are, and the people who say, "Well, it's abusive by design," um, are ignoring the abuses that that could be carried out with the uh, uh, the technology that they're touting, which uh, essentially turns over to every employee the question of what should enter or leave the corporate network, which is, you know. Uh, which it, if you were in the business of coming up with bumper stickers like abusive by design, you'd call child porn by design. Uh, it's, um, it, it, you know, the, all of these things can be abused and the unwillingness of the IETF engineers to consider that possibility uh, in the face of a bumper sticker like uh, no back doors uh, is pretty disappointing. Uh, um, and let me ask this other question. Do you use the Whois database, uh, uh, which uh, is now at risk of going away because, again, of privacy campaigners? It's, it's like they're the, uh, after the Russians, the most enthusiastic attackers of uh, security. Yeah. Um, uh, but there, there are people every, who, you, you use no, it? We, we use it. We use it all the time, right? Like, uh, uh, I used it this morning, right? Oh, God. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and so, 
um, it's really important. It's a really important tool. And obfuscating the data that's in there is uh, is a challenge for us, right? Uh, certainly. So last last question, uh, other than to uh, give you the chance to plug any uh, uh, upcoming uh, events, uh, the VEP, you're critical of the uh, vulnerability equity process in the United States uh, um, because you think that it's too loaded in favor of exploitation of vulnerabilities rather than disclosure. Uh, and that's a not uncommon uh, um, uh, uh, criticism. I'm not sure I share it. But I was struck by the fact that uh, uh, we now qu- have quite a bit of insight into the Chinese vulnerabilities equity process, which appears to be extraordinarily loaded toward exploitation. Uh, uh, they got caught radically delaying um, a bunch of vulnerability reports for things that looked like they would be good tools. Um, the decisions are made by the security service. Uh, uh, and when they got caught, um, uh, they kind of more or less confessed guilt by going back and changing all the effective dates in the hopes that no one would be able to catch them in the future. Uh, and I, I wonder if in a world where the Chinese have a vulnerabilities equities process that is designed to maximize their ability to break into systems, whether we can afford to have one in which we um, uh, move the needle more toward disclosure and less toward uh, uh, building hacking tools aimed at our adversaries. Yeah, look, I, I uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Chinese government getting dibs on vulnerabilities before they're disclosed. Right? I think that's. Uh, uh, certainly dirty pool. Um, and, and look, what they're doing is putting a stranglehold on, you know, the openness that this whole uh, process is built on top of, right? Even private researchers, we're not talking about government entities. We're talking about private researchers have to submit to the Chinese government uh, before it, it makes its way into their uh, program and they get first dibs. So here's what I'd say. Um, I'd say that I think um, the focus on offense versus defense is a little out of whack in the vet program today. And I think, uh, uh, you know, with your background, I'm not surprised to hear your perspective. But for a guy like me in, in, in the private sector, um, you know, it would be nice to have, certainly you can't, this is all secret and top secret stuff, uh, certainly you can't have full transparency, but it would be nice to have a more defensive uh, balance in the assessment process. Now, we saw the number of vulnerabilities that made their way into National Vulnerability Database double last year. Uh, no one's told me that, uh, um, you know, there's a better balance between defense and offense. Uh, but I can do my job better uh, and defend uh, the private sector better when I know about these vulnerabilities. Now, do I say we do it all, all defense and no offense? That would be a terrible strategy as well. And so the question becomes, how do you, how do you make that work? Um, and, and maybe uh, uh, having a better method or more transparent method um, um, that involves uh, a broader set of stakeholders in the, in the disclosure process might help, uh, help create balance around those decisions a little bit better um, and, and help us focus on, on protecting our uh, private sector and public sec- sector infrastructure better over the long term. 
All right, Pete, thank you very much. Uh, your book is The Cyber Conundrum, How Do We Fix Cybersecurity? Available, I assume, on uh, uh, Amazon, uh, Kindle, and the like. Uh, um, do you have any book readings or events or speeches that you want to draw people's attention to or, uh, you know, uh, new shows from Turner? Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, new shows from Turner, I'll take the, uh, the fifth on as well. Um, uh, for now, no comment. But I, I will say this, that uh, we have a number of events uh, that will be announced on uh, cyberconundrum.com, which is the book's website, uh, and uh, uh, very pleased uh, at the uh, response so far to the book and appreciate the opportunity to come and, and talk with you a little bit about it today. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks to Pete Kronos. Uh, thanks also to Alan Cohn, Stephanie Roy, and Gus Hurwitz. This has been episode 208 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we are seeking a part-time intern to work exclusively on podcasts things. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, please go to the steptoe.com website and poke around until you find the career section. It is impossible to find. But if you can't find it, you know, you probably shouldn't get the job. So I uh, uh, be persistent. Uh, if you've got a guest to suggest uh, for, for the program, uh, please send us an email uh, at uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and if the guest comes on the program. We will send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, coming up, we're going to be joined by Michael Page, uh, who's Policy and Ethics Advisor at OpenAI, and I'll be doing that uh, interview with the staff of the National Security Law podcast, uh, I, all of the anonymous women and Harvey Rishikoff uh, uh, from that program are going to be with me. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, I, and uh, uh, we hope you'll join us for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.